Today is part 13 of our Revelation series, and I entitled today's message, A Rapidly Approaching Peace. And one thing I want to share with you at the beginning that's not on your sheet is a quote by Gerald Johnson, who wrote a book on Revelation called Discipleship on the Edge. He said this, just listen. He said, the two-scene vision of Revelation 7 that we will study today is the most comforting of all the visions recorded in the last book of the Bible. The first scene tells us that before we enter into the crunch where kingdoms clash, we are sealed. We are made secure, not safe, not insulated. The second scene tells us that on the other side of the crunch lies a new world wherein we experience unrestricted intimacy with the center of the universe himself. Growing up, as I shared at the beginning of the series, I've always been freaked out by Revelation. I didn't like studying it. I didn't like reading it. I certainly was not going to read it before bed, right? It was always taught to me in a very scary fashion. This whole idea of everyone's getting beheaded, all kinds of bad stuff is happening, a beast here, a mark here. It was always talked about in a very scary fashion, so I avoided it. However, I've been trying to dive back into it with a fresh new perspective and something shocked me this time around. I did not realize how much encouragement is baked into this book. I did not realize that every few steps as you go through, God stops everything and he says, you do know you're safe, right? To his kids. And then you go a few more steps right before something scary happens. He said, hey, before we walk through this, I want you to know I'm there with you. I'm going to shield you beforehand, and I'm going to be there when you get out. Encouragement is loaded into this book. When I first would study it or read through it, I'd get to the end of the story, and it says, use these words to encourage one another, brothers. And I was like, I am not doing that, okay? If somebody is having a bad day, I'm not going to go, Revelation says. Right. Uh, That's not something that immediately comes to mind. And I missed all the encouragement, all the great stuff. I got so caught up in the fearful aspect of it. I wasn't looking accurately this time through. I've had a bit more peace and I'm able to take a look at it and say, wait a second. This is an extremely encouraging book. This is the book that tells us what a worship service is like in heaven. This is the one that tells us everything's going to be okay. This is the one that gives us those famous words like wiping away every tear from our eyes. This is a book that over and over keeps stopping everything and saying, I care for you, I love you, and you are secure in who I am. Today is one of those big pauses. Today is one of those huge encouragements where we have now watched... Six seals of a scroll being broken by the Lamb of God. We've now watched all six, and it started with the four horsemen, and oh, what's that mean? And conquest, and bloodshed, and famine, and death, and Hades are riding in, and we get we get all nervous, and then there's another seal about these martyrs underneath the altar, and then the day of the Lord's symbols hit, and there's the sky is falling, and all of a sudden there's this massive pause. Big parenthesis. Before you get to the seventh seal. And God says, let me explain something to you. Out of all this scariness, nothing's out of control. I'm in control. I run this show. I know exactly who is protected. I know exactly what's going to occur. And just so you don't worry, let me tell you. And he reveals to us exactly what's going to happen. 
the end of chapter six ended with a question. And the question was, when all this bad stuff was happening, everybody was diving under the rocks and crawling, you know, calling for the mountains to fall on them. And they said, who can hide us from the, the wrath of the lamb in his day? Who can stand? That's a big question. Who's going to make it? Who can handle it? Who's going to be safe in such a dangerous environment? Chapter seven is an answer to that question. Who can stand? God's kids can stand. And then he explains why. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 7? It's page 870 in the Bible's handed to you, 870. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. I'm going to read through this passage. I'll pray for the word. I'll give you the fill in the blank and we'll dive into it. Ready to go? Let's do this. After this, John says... I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin, each with 12,000. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in the white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know, and he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may your refreshment fall down upon us today. Your encouragement, your security be lodged deep within our souls that as we go through and study this, as we begin to move about in the mysteries that you are revealing, that we would know surely what is to come, that we would know for sure what it is that you think about us, how you care for us, how you protect us. Lord, as a loving, protective father, 
Can we feel that today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The fill in the blank in front of you on your sheet is this. The seeming chaos of the end is the means to peace we shall receive. The seeming chaos, now it's not chaos, it's very orchestrated, but to us it's going to appear as chaos. So the seeming chaos of the end, which we are studying, is actually the means to peace we shall receive. It's the fulfillment of the redemption plan. Jesus was always going to demonstrate his love for us. He was always going to come. He was always going to lay out his life for ours and show us that we were desperately important to him. That was always going to happen. This part is all the necessary conclusion to that story. We can't have the peace unless we have this. We cannot have the finished redemption, the justice that we seek. We cannot have all things made right without this ending. So it must happen. But along the way, God wants to consistently remind us, listen, my wrath is not for my children. My wrath is for my enemies. My wrath is for those that turn their back on me. I am here to shield you, protect you, and bring you to me. What I hope that you see in all of this is this dramatic tension. The tension is God wanting to be patient to gather in all that will come and yet wanting to hurry up and get to the end so we can move on. Do you feel that tension in Scripture where there's so much of this, God, can't we just finish this thing? And this whole, hold on a second, there are more that I love. That are coming in. And there's this back and forth. Do I go faster? Do I slow down? God knows it perfectly. But for us, we feel this immense tension. That's all hitting right here, right now in this book of Revelation. Now, before we move on into the study, there's one last thing I want to say. And that is, I received an email from a friend of mine who used to attend here and went to the Philippines and um, he does a study with his friends there and he emailed me this last week and he said, we've been following the podcast, love the Re- revelation stuff, but we're having a hard time it, uh, not seeing it as just Bible trivia. We're having a hard time making it practical. So I know there are more that feel that way. So let me address that really quick. When we read through this stuff, it is not about, Oh, that's interesting. I never knew that before. Oh, that's good head knowledge. This is all about changing us. To become more like Christ, love people more, love God more. If that is not occurring, we are failing. We are not here just to get neat Bible trivia in case there's ever a Bible Jeopardy show and we can win a million dollars, right? That's not what we're doing. What we're trying to do is transform. So when you read this stuff or when you read all this creepy stuff about creatures coming out of the sea and all this thing, every time ask yourself this. What do I know differently about God now? What does God want me to do in light of what I know? Every time we have these messages, for example, when you read the four horsemen ride out, you now know that God has control over every element. He deserves praise. He now can give you a new song to sing, right? But you also realize that bad stuff comes down and you say, will I be able to stand in that day? What about my life? Am I living a certain way to where I'm becoming more and more soft every year? 
Am I becoming more worldly every year so that let's say the Antichrist does show up? If I, am I even going to even know what this guy's like? Always ask yourself the personal questions. When you see a massive worship service in heaven and the angels falling down, face down before God, ask yourself, in my heart, what must I do? If they're so fired up about it, what about me? Am I dry? Am I okay? No matter what you see, no matter what is revealed in this scripture, it means something to you. Please don't make this academic. Make it transformational, all right? Good. Now let's dive into this. Revelation 7, 1. Let's see what we can find as we go through and see if there's anything that we can pull out. John said, after this, meaning after the whole who can stand, the question is answered. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. All right. Are there really four angels on the four corners of the earth? Everyone goes, all right, well, that's stupid. We're on a big ball. There's no four corners of the earth. All right. And you go, well, that's why the Bible's bogus. You see, because they thought that the world was flat. And so they believed in four corners of the world. No, they didn't. Well, yeah, they did. They thought the world was flat. But do you understand that if you go back into the ancient literature, there's just as much evidence that they believed that the world was flat, but a disc and not a square. So if you have a disc, you still don't have four corners. You get that? Just because they thought the world was flat doesn't mean that they immediately thought there was four corners. This is a metaphor. Metaphor. When you look at a compass and you go north, south, east, west, is there really such a thing or do we just make it up? If we're on a big ball, east eventually meets west. There is no such thing as east, west, north, south. We're making it up. That's all this is. They didn't have any other belief that, oh, and then there's an exact corner and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, there's some cultures that believed all sorts of things. There's some ancient beliefs that they believe that if the wind came in square, direct, it was calm. But if it came in diagonally, that was a destructive wind. That's why some people read this and they go, oh, the angels are at the corners. Oh, that means there's some destruction coming in. It's very common in apocalyptic literature to see the angels doing the work of God. So here we have the angels restraining these four winds. Now, obviously, here we don't think of wind necessarily as being as destructive. We've seen wind be destructive in Florida and on the East Coast. But when you are in the Middle East and you know what a desert storm is, you understand the devastation of a wind. When all of a sudden this dust storm or a sandstorm begins to rise up and dominates everything, you know the power of the wind. So now we have these destructive forces coming on and there's four angels holding it back in a restraining posture. Now you go, John, that's pretty creative. John didn't come up with that. He's just writing down what he saw. God's coming up with the cool stuff, right? John's just going, I don't know, man. I saw four angels. They're holding stuff up, right? That's it. So I'm just letting you know. They're holding back the four winds. Why? Because if the winds were released... It would cause devastation on the earth. All right. Whatever that means, they're holding it back. Why? Well, we're told in the next phrase. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east. Why is he coming up from the east? Does that just make a cool picture? Perhaps. Or 
we can look at it and say, well, wait a second. There's a lot of stuff that's mentioned about the east. The one thing that we talk about most commonly from the east is that's where the sun rises. Now, does it really rise from the east? No. Okay, that's another metaphor. But we see it come from the east, the idea that there is hope coming. So whatever this guy is coming from the east, something is about to change. So it says the angels coming from the east having what? The seal of the living God. All right. When I first began this series with you, I told a little story. When I was young, my sister got a stationary set with a wax seal packet. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever used something like that, but here's basically how it goes. You'd write a little note, you'd stick an envelope, and when you fold the thing down, instead of licking it and making it seal, you would do the old school way of doing it. You light a candle that had wax, and you would drip the wax onto your paper and let it puddle up. Then, just when it begins to cool, you take a stamp, something uh, metal, and you would put an impression into the stamp, and then it dries and hardens. And that means that it's sealed. That's what we're talking about. That's the ancient way to seal stuff. So when we talk about breaking the seals, it's almost like wax seals all the way down. In the same way, here comes an angel out of the east, and he has something in his hand that John knows is a seal of the living God. What does he have? Well, in the ancient world, the seal was normally a ring, a signet ring. A ring that had the emblem of the king on it. He could hand that to somebody else and say, on my behalf, sign these papers. Seal, seal, seal all the way through, right? So now the Lord has taken off his signet ring, handed to the angel, and he says, go get my stuff done. Here comes the angel with the seal of God in his hand. And John's like, oh, what's he going to mark? This is going to be awesome. Well, it's going to mark people. Look at this. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. You go, I thought angels were nice. Do you understand angels do God's bidding and sometimes that gets really ugly and nasty? Are we all clear on that? Go back to the Passover story. Who was doing the slaying? The angel of God was sweeping through. This angel of death was going through the camp and slaying. When the Assyrians were wiped out before Israel, who did the slaying? the angels of God, they go out and do the work. They get their hands dirty. These guys are brutal. Angels, a lot of them are warriors. These are very strong, powerful angels. So they come in and they're ready to do the destruction. And one angel says, hold on a second, hold up. I got to get something done first. Then I'll let you go. What does he need to do? He said, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. All right, we've got a couple problems here. First problem, he said, don't harm the trees until I put the seal on. But we've already read the four horsemen. The third horseman was what? We thought he was famine. And we talked about it affecting the crops. So are we now out of time here? Are we off chronology? Because he said, don't touch anything until we seal it. And they're not getting sealed till now. Or was everything that the horsemen did have to do with people? Economics, war, conquest, bloodshed, Hades and death, right? Is that all man stuff? We have yet to touch the earth. 
And now God's going to say, hold on, we're about to wipe the earth. We're going to shake the heavens. We're going to shake the earth. There's going to be meteorites flying down. There's going to be devastation. There's going to be earthquakes. Before any of that stuff hits, mark my people. All right? We have to make a decision. But he said what? Don't harm any of this stuff until we put the seal on where? The forehead of the servants of our God. What's the deal with the forehead thing? Right? You gotta, foreheads are pretty common in scripture. Why? Because they're billboards. Mostly, now ladies, I know that some of the styles that we have, sometimes there's bangs and we cover up our billboards, right? <laughs> but in general, it's kind of a hard place to cover up. Anything that's marked on your face is hard to cover up. For example, everyone sees Mike Tyson's, what? Tattoo, right? Why? Because it's up on his face. You can't hide that stuff. If you put a tattoo on an arm, you can cover it. If you put other markings on your body, you're usually covered, right? Sorry, I keep messing with my mic. Sorry, bro. But when you got something on your forehead, it's obvious to everybody. But there's another symbology that comes with it, which is what? What's behind your forehead? Your brain, right? Or rocks, depending on who you're, who you're speaking about, right? Okay, right behind there is your mind. So literally, to try to get this point across, the Jews, actually, some of the priests, they would have the boxes. Remember, you put the boxes of the scriptures on your forehead. Why? Why? So you can look stupid? No. You put them on your forehead because it's saying imprint these scriptures on your mind. Make it part of your character because your forehead represents your mind. It represents what you're about, the decisions that you make. Now, your character is revealed there. So when he goes to Mark, he marks right on your forehead. And he says, I want this impression on your mind. What is the seal? What is on that signet ring? We're told in chapter 14. It says that it's the name of the lamb and his father. So it has Jesus Christ, God the father, stamped right on your head. Now, we have to have a conversation about markings, right? Because even though this is the first marking in scripture, what's the more popular marking in Revelation? 666, right? Isn't that what everybody remembers? Oh, it's the mark of the beast. Do you understand the mark of the beast comes way after the mark of God? Actually, this is a takeoff of Ezekiel chapter 9. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel sees this amazing vision where God's about to bring wrath on the world. He sees a vision of a man with an ink set hung at his side, and he goes through and marks with an X the foreheads of all the righteous people in the town so that when wrath comes, it doesn't hit them. This is an exact duplicate, the marking of the forehead. That's a God mark. It's a protection mark. It's an ownership mark. This is all about being sealed and secure, right? But we always focus on the 666, and we'll talk about it when we get to that passage, but I want to suggest to you something here. We've always pictured this idea, and it always shows up in the movies, that there's literally a number or a barcode. You know, that's because it says the mark of the beast will either be on their forehead or their right hand. What is the right hand? What did I tell you that symbolizes? Your authority and your power and what you choose to do. Now, we have two symbolic areas of a human being. 
we always go back and go, well, you're going to need to get some marking on. Is it going to be a literal marking? Because if so, maybe this needs to be a literal marking that God's going to run around and start stamping people's heads. So you either got this Jesus on your head or you got like 666 on your head. My question for you is, is it possible that this has a lot to do with character issues? It has a lot to do with something much deeper and much more revealing than any type of barcode. Just something to think about. We'll get to that in a little bit later. Moves on, says what? Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And then it gives this list, right? Now, if you were studying this on your own, you'd blow that off, huh? Yeah, you just move on. There ain't nothing there. No, you're in church now, so we got to slow down and do it, right? That's why I'm here. Now, 144,000, who in the world are these guys? Because there are certain religions today that take this in a very specific way. Would you agree? Everyone familiar with those types of religions. Now, in that, they would believe this is the only people that are really going to heaven and things like that. What does the Bible say about the 144,000? Well, first of all, I can tell you right now, I don't know. There you go. All right, moving on. 144,000, there's something very specific about it, something very interesting. It's multiple of 12. That's very significant. Why? Because there's 12 tribes of Israel, and 12 is used over and over and over in the Old Testament. How many disciples were there? 12. The idea of 12 goes around all the time. Now you have 12 times 12,000. We have this massive number. So is it possible that this is absolutely figurative and symbolic of the fullness of Israel? Totally. That is an absolutely legit view. A lot of other people argue. They go, well, all these tribe divisions, these are all lost. They're all gone. There's no genealogical records. No Jew can go back and go, I'm from the tribe of Dan because blah, 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 blah. There are no records. They were all wiped out for the top 10 tribes, and they were all wiped out at the sack of Jerusalem in AD 70. So there are no records. So people go, it's obvious that clearly this is symbolic of something else. All right, that's very possible. However, I believe it's pretty specific, and God is going to use it as a tool to explain a spiritual truth, but I believe it's literal. That's just me personally. You go, well, how's he going to know? I really don't think when they lost the records, God's like, oh, I forgot to back up. Oh, shoot. I have, I have absolutely no idea. I, uh, who are you? I, okay, no, I think he's pretty good, at, right? I mean, prices have come way down on like hard drive space, so I think he's pretty good. All right, no, he knows. He doesn't need all these records. He can pick it out and just go, that's what you are. You're this, this tribe. Oh, all the tribes have intermixed. That's not a complication for God. So what does it stand for? Well, we have two choices. If it's marked out for God's ambassadors and people, it's either going to be a mixture of the church in Israel, true Israel, or it's Jew specific, right? Those are really your only two choices. I'm going to suggest that you can go either way because the New Testament is pretty clear on how true Israel and the church are one. But I'm going to suggest to you that God is not done with the Israeli people and that there is a very specific plan that will unfold at the end. And this is literally ethnic Jews, Jews, very specific. 
Why? What would be the point in sealing? Because he's going to tell you there's a big group of Gentiles. So he's talking about Israel. He even uses the phrase Israel and he marks out the tribes. Israel. It's all about Israel. Why? What's the purpose? So that the Jewish people in the end will do what they were always supposed to do. What were they always supposed to do? Be the salt and light of the world. They were the ones that were to walk out to mankind and say, you want to know God? Let me show you. The Jews were always God's first display to the world. The Jews were always supposed to be the ones that would herald his name. And they will be again, in my opinion. I believe that in the end, there's going to be a massive movement amongst the Jewish people. And they will finally fulfill what they were asked to do. Do you remember the Abrahamic covenant? The Abrahamic covenant, when Abraham was around, God said, I will make the people that are blessed through you as numerous as the sand of the seashore. I will use you to reach all the outermost parts of the earth. The Jews are the evangelists of the world. But when they weren't doing it so hot, guess who got brought in? Gentiles. Now we're in. We're part of the family. But that doesn't mean that God's done with national Israel. I believe there will be a massive resurgence and Israel will fulfill what they were called to do. I believe this is part of it. Now, what about the list? The list is funky for a couple of reasons. And here's why. When you go through and you read that list, you go, okay, 12 tribes. Cool. That's the 12 tribes. The list is weird for a couple key reasons. Number one, Who's the firstborn son of Jacob? Remember Jacob, it goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Jacob had 12 sons. They actually had names. Names like Manasseh, names like Gad, names like Naphtali, names like Reuben, names like Judah. These were real kids. And they had whole people groups that came out of them. So now you look at and you go, oh, they had 12 kids. There's 12 people there. The list is wrong. The firstborn son is Reuben. Who's the first, who's first listed Judah? Why? Why did Reuben get bumped to Sue? Because the lion of the tribe of Judah has shown Jesus Christ, the Messiah came from the tribe of Judah. All of a sudden, boom, he got bumped up because we're talking about Jesus. There are 29 lists of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Bible. And a lot of them keep moving and adjusting. It's always 12, but the order keeps moving and you go, well, How could the order change when we have only 12 guys? We don't have 12 guys. We at least have 13. You go, well, what do you mean? He had 12 sons. But do you remember how they were numbered? We start out with all the kids and then we get to Joseph. But when they broke up the land into 12 pieces, Levi didn't get one. You remember? Why didn't Levi not get any land? Because he was the church guy, right? He became the... Levi, the priestly helpers, they didn't get any land allotment. Now all of a sudden we have a space open. Who gets that space? Joseph's name gets pulled out and his two sons fill those two spots. Ephraim and Manasseh lock in. Now Joseph gets two. Levi's pulled out, but Levi's back in the list. What does all this stuff mean? Somebody's missing. Who's missing? Dan. Dan's missing. He's not on the list. Why? Everybody speculates. Here's the most likely reason. It's trying to make a point. 
It just said something about the seal of the living God. That means living God as opposed to fake gods of idolatry. Dan is famous for how they finished. The tribe of Dan was part of the ten northern tribes. There's two in the south, ten in the north, right? We had this big civil war. Well, the problem is, when you guys don't get along, how do you get to go to temple when the temple's in the south? What are you going to do? Well, you think you're going to cross down and go try to go to temple when you guys are warring? That ain't going to happen. So what did Dan do? They set up their own shrine. And they violated God's law. And they led the northern tribes into idolatry. God got mad and made a statement and talked about wiping them out. There's a belief that symbolically it's trying to say Dan blew it. They're not on the list for this purpose. Now, the one other guess was that a guy named Irenaeus, which is a horrible name, by the way. Don't name your child that, right? Irenaeus, who wrote in the second century, said, Dan's not listed because the Antichrist comes out of Dan. You're like, what? Where did that come from? It's one of the oldest beliefs on the books. Just side note. All right, moving on. Here we go. (laughs) It's one of those things I'm like, I don't know. All right, moving on. After this, after these Jewish witnesses, and by the way, how do all these guys get saved? We'll find out later that there are two witnesses that are dropped into Israel. Some people call them symbolic. Some people call them literal. But two witnesses show up. I think they're literal. When they show up, they're walking around the streets and doing miraculous signs. They're Jews, and they're going to rock the Jewish world. Everybody hates their guts. Eventually, they'll get killed after three and a half years, and they will lie dead in the street for three days. All national news coverage, let's look, look, dead bodies lying right there. On the third day, they get up, and they rise up into heaven. All right, that's going to cause kind of a widespread revival, don't you think? All right, moving on. After this, he said, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, nation, people and language. That is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. You can't number the sand on the seashore. This is what God promised Abraham. And this is what God does. When God promises, he always fulfills. Standing before the throne and in front of the lamb, pure and faultless. They were wearing white robes of purity and righteousness. They were holding palm branches in their hands, which are signs of victory. When's the last time you saw that happen? The triumphal entry. Remember, Jesus rides in on a donkey into Jerusalem and everyone throws down the palm branches and their cloaks. Now Jesus is getting the right worship. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. In other words, we did not get here because we earned it. We did not get here because we worked our way. We didn't get here because we deserve it. All of our salvation is due to the grace and mercy of God. He is the one that gave us salvation. It's not us. We are pure because of the lamb of God. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders. Remember those 24 guys? And the four living creatures, remember they had different faces? They fell down on their faces, the angels did, before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. That's seven. 
the number of perfection forever and ever be to our God. Amen. The book of Luke says that all the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. What do you think the worship is going to be like when they all show up in front of the Lamb? Can you imagine how extraordinary that is? Then one of the elders, that's one of the guys that were sitting on the thrones around Jesus Christ. We th- didn't know who they were. We're guessing, are there, do they represent the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles? That would make 24. But one of them comes off his throne and he comes up and he asks John a question. These in white robes, who are they? Where'd they come from? You can imagine John getting a little nervous. He's like, dude, I'm new here. I have no idea. You've been sitting here for a while. Maybe you know, right? So he says, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now we can take that to say one of two things. Either this is all the church, the true church worldwide before God that has ever come out. Or we can say this is a large number of those that died during the tribulation that were killed for the sake of Christ. It doesn't say they were killed. Is that what it's implying? Or does it just mean they're all the believers standing before God? All right. And what do they do? They are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. Now to a Jew, that's a big deal. Because in the Old Testament, remember, you don't get to go in the temple. You didn't get to be near God. Everyone was jealous of the Levites. Everyone was jealous of the priests. Why? They get to be close to God and nobody else did. And now all of a sudden, everybody's equal. Now all of a sudden, everybody gets to minister before the Lord. This is an honor. They worship before him or they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne, meaning God... Jesus Christ will spread his tent over them. That means he will shield and protect them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. Meaning all their needs will be met and they will lack nothing. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. That means when we're in heaven, we are fully shielded and protected. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. How does a lamb become the shepherd? Isn't that weird? That's kind of a little play on words, right? It's kind of like, and the lion came and I turned and there was a lamb. Just like you had the lion lamb tie-in, you now have a shepherd lamb tie-in. What does it mean? Well, I think it's pretty deep on a bunch of different levels. One of them is that it's almost like the lamb walked and then stood up and became the shepherd, which Jesus walked where we walked, has done what we did, has been where we were, and then rose up and said, let me lead you. I've already been there. Don't you get it? I've done it all perfectly. Follow my example. He stands up. He is their guide. He is our shepherd. And then what does it say? And he will lead them to springs of living water. That is the refreshment you've always been waiting for. That is the idea that suddenly it all makes sense. That's this idea where Jesus said to the woman at the well, can you get me a drink? And so she tries to get him a drink. He said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink. I'm the living water. And when you drink of me, you will never thirst again. He was saying, I'm the solution to all that your soul craves. I'm here for you. 
He will lead them to refreshment. Is anybody tired and anybody beat up? Anybody sick and tired of getting wailed on in this world? Anybody tired of the whole idea of feeling awkward and nothing works right? Guys, anybody feeling frustrated at work? Ladies, anybody feeling frustrated in relationships? That's why heaven is so amazingly attractive, is there's a whole waterfall of refreshment to wash over you. God says, before things get bad, can I please remind you of where we're headed? It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What pains you today will not pain you in eternity. Pain is temporary. Peace is eternal. Whatever ache you have in your heart, whether it's for something that happened to you poorly or something that never happened to you that you needed, God has that solution in the palm of his hand. He knows what you need. He even knows what you want. He knows what's good for you. And he wants you to know that before we get into any of this messy stuff in the end times, he just said, that's a really short time. Can I please remind you that for eternity you'll be with me? We're going to be great. And it's going to be amazing. One of the reasons I believe that heaven is not described in detail very often is because we wouldn't get it. And we certainly wouldn't value it if we were told. It will be beyond anything you can imagine. What's waiting for us? Rest. What's waiting for us? Adventure. I thought heaven was all about sleeping. No, it's really not. You don't create a new heavens and a new earth if there's nothing to do. Oh, we have adventure before us. But it's adventure that matters. It's adventure that's healthy. It's where you do something and you feel useful and successful. See, Being in the presence of Jesus makes all the difference in the world. It heals all those pains. It unites all that is broken. It shatters all the barriers. When we walk into this scary time, keep in mind what's just on the other side of the door. Because peace is rapidly approaching. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for a a refreshment time, Lord, to be able to, in the midst of these mysteries, drink from a water fountain, to be able to know all the security that comes, all the lavishing love that pours out, all this constant reminder of how precious we are to you. Lord, I just pray that we might sing a new song in our heart to you today. That, Lord, this would be so intensely practical. That we would live different in light of the end. That we would know that though there are difficult times to come for many, perhaps us, that they are nothing. Paul called them, Lord, light and temporary in comparison to the glory that will be revealed. We pray right now, Father, that you would be honored in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.